Um, last week, uh, we introduced kind of a, a series within a series. We're currently making our way through the Sermon on the Mount. We've been going through the Sermon on the Mount pretty slowly uh, over the last few months. And last week, we got here to the Lord, uh, Lord's Prayer, and we talked about how we were going to look at the Lord's Prayer as a, a mini-series within the bigger series that is the Sermon on the Mount. These, these words from the Lord's Prayer are probably the best-known words of the entire Bible. Uh, whether you're a Christian or not, you've probably at least heard these words before. Uh, if you are a Christian, then you've probably memorized these words. Maybe you haven't memorized much of the Bible, but this is probably, if anything, the part of the Bible that you have memorized, maybe along with John 3.16 or, or something like that. And there's such familiar words that actually uh, we, can, we can fail to understand just how remarkable they are because they're so familiar. If you're uh, raised as a, as a Christian and you were taught these words and memorized these words, then they can just sort of roll off your tongue without much thought. And, and the, the power of them, the just amazing depth to them can be completely lost on us. Um, imagine, okay... I don't know if you're watching the U.S. Open. I'm watching the U.S. Open. Uh, I'm a bit of a golf fan. Scotty Scheffler is not at the top of the leaderboard, but he is the number one player in the world right now. Imagine if Scotty Scheffler offered you golf lessons. And you're like, golf is dumb. Okay, fine. You like the cello. And Yo-Yo Ma says, I want to teach you how to play the cello. Or you like baseball, and Mike Trout comes over to your place on a weekend and says to your family, hey, let's play pickup, and I'll, uh, I'll show you some, some things here or there. Or maybe you're into cooking, and, and Jamie Oliver runs into you at the grocery store and says, hey, what are you up to? And you say, oh, I'm just trying to, I'm going to figure out how to make this recipe. He goes, hey, I, that's my recipe. Let me come over, and I'll show you how to do it. You jump at the chance, right? Well, here is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, teaching us how to pray. We should jump at this chance. Now, he's not going to teach us the exact words. Many of us might think, oh, this is how we're supposed to pray, but that's probably not what Jesus is doing. He's not giving us the exact word because this, in Matthew 6, is a public prayer, and uh, it's, it's as written. If you go to Luke 11, that's where the disciples come to Jesus and say, Lord, teach us to pray. And he says, when you pray, and he gives a bit of a different version. So, so scholars say that what Jesus is offering in the Lord's Prayer is not so much the exact wording, but the pattern. When you pray, pray this way. Here's how you should do it. Here's what you should be thinking about as you pray. This is the, the pattern of prayer that I want you to pound into yourself so that it becomes the habitual way you pray whenever you pray. So what we're going to do over the next little while is we're going to go through this prayer line by line to learn what it is that's supposed to be the pattern of prayer that we need to know. And isn't it interesting that we need to be taught to pray? Prayer is not something that comes to us naturally, which is really frustrating, isn't it? Because it's this thing that Jesus assumes we're going to do. He says, when you pray, pray this way. And it's this thing that the Bible seems to indicate is deeply, deeply important for you to have a, a powerful, intimate, 
relationship with God, and yet it's like oxygen for a human being. Without oxygen, we die. Without, without prayer, a Christian dies, and it's so very important to us, and yet we're not very good at it. Why is that? Well, we actually get a hint from the very first line of the prayer. When Jesus says, he says, pray, when you pray, you should pray, our Father in heaven. He says that we're supposed to God, call God our Father. We're supposed to understand God as a Father. We're supposed to refer to Him as our Father. Now, we're going to say a lot more about that uh, as the sermon unfolds, but, but what Jesus are, is getting at at the most basic level, at the most simple level, the most foundational level, is that prayer is a personal, relational activity. It is a discourse between people. And this is important to remember because this is what makes it so very, very different from meditation. You probably know that meditation is a big deal right now. Mindfulness, meditation, I mean, we've got a culture that is exploding with people struggling with anxiety and worry and fear and all this kind of stuff. And so uh, mindfulness meditation, though it comes in many, many different brands and kinds, has been, has been sort of offered to our culture as a way of, of calming ourselves, as a way of centering us, ourselves, and a way, as a way of kind of controlling ourselves in order for us to, to handle life and get through life in a much healthier way. But behind all the different kinds of meditation is basically this. It's a focus on the inner you, right? So you'll focus on an idea on an emotion, maybe on a phrase in more Eastern versions of meditation, you might focus kind of on a sound, you know, you, when you see the people go like on cartoons and stuff and they go om like that. It's the idea behind it all is, is to become aware of what's going on inside you. It's very, very inner focused and individual focused. Prayer is very, very different from that. Because prayer is about communion with another person. It's, it's personal and it's relational. It's not focusing on you, but it's actually getting the focus off of you onto someone else. That's what prayer is about. It's about focusing on your Heavenly Father. And that's what makes it so hard. Because you can't solve the problem of prayer with a technique. Meditation is about mastering a technique. You cannot master another person, you see. If prayer is relational and it's communion between you and God, between two individual people, it takes work because you need to know that person in order to have that kind of communication with them. What I'm trying to say is, if you find your prayers boring, <laughs> bland, stilted, if you find you run out of things to say really, really fast, unless you're going through your laundry list, because your laundry list is just like never-ending. You have needs that you're constantly bringing to God. But if you're trying to do any other kind of prayer, like adoration, for example, and you find your prayers are sort of running out of steam, it's because, frankly, you don't know who you're talking to. As a pastor, I get invited to a lot of weddings because I'm the officiant, and sometimes uh, I get invited to the reception as well. 
Uh, and I end up sitting with people I don't know because, you know, the relationship I have with the couple is just, I'm the pastor, I'm not part of the family, right? So Jessica and I, we end up at a table with, with, uh, with people we don't know very well. And when the conversation starts, it's always a little bit awkward at first, you know? Like, you don't really know each other. Where are you from? What do you do? How do you know the couple? Isn't that great? Okay. And then... You know, you maybe try to say a joke, and it's a bad joke, it's offensive to the person, and now you feel really stupid, like Jess never does this, but this sort of happens to me sometimes. And it's because you don't have that rapport, but what, what about when you're talking to your, your closest friends? They come over for a campfire, even if you haven't seen them for months, you sit down, and the conversation, it just starts to flow, and it's easy and it's not forced in any way. Sometimes when you hear people, if you, I don't know if you've ever done this, if you've overheard the prayers of others, you can just tell they know who they're talking to. My mom was like that. You could listen to my mom pray, and it was seriously like Jesus was sitting right beside her. And it just flowed back and forth. It was a very easy thing for her. Here's the thesis for this morning's message, friends. The basis of prayer is to know who you're talking to. It all starts there. That's, that's why Jesus starts with our Father in heaven. This is what will ignite your prayer life. If you know who it is you're praying to, Jesus says, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Jesus says you are to address God as your Father. That's who you're talking to, the creator of the universe, the one who spoke, and everything that is came to be. All he did was speak, and the universe, with all its billions upon trillions of stars, and, and all the planets, and all the people down through history, and all the animals, and all the bugs and insects, and all the plants, and all the things that, that have ever been, that God, he says, is your Father. This is the key. Let me put it this way. To spark your prayer life, you, you've got to You've got to make the fatherhood of God the lens through which you pray. You ever, you ever have a magnifying glass? Kids, your parents ever foolish enough to give you a magnifying glass? Most parents are foolish enough to give their kids a magnifying glass at some point. You can start fires with that thing, hey? Usually you start out with, like, ants. Let's be honest, right? It takes the sun's rays into the magnifying glass and it focuses it down to a point and there you go outside on the sidewalk and you're chasing those poor ants around with your magnifying glass. And then maybe you graduate to paper and then you go, oh, that takes a long time and you discover Kleenex. Little hint for you kids out there. <laughs> it focuses things into a powerful point where the fire can be ignited, right? Well, the fatherhood of God is the lens that we're supposed to take all that we know about God and all that we want to say to God and, and focus it through that prayer till our, our, or through that lens, the fatherhood of God, until our hearts ignite. Or Let me put it one more way. Don't go past our Father in heaven to the petitions of the Lord's Prayer. And you've got lots of petitions, I know. And you want to get to them, I know. 
but don't go to them until the fatherhood of God has been so rooted in your heart that you are in communion with him and then moving on to your petitions. That's, that's the application for today's message. I've given you the application at the beginning, so we're done. We're not done because what we're going to do for the rest of the message this morning is we're going to actually do that. We're going to meditate on the fatherhood of God, what it, what it means in order that hopefully our hearts will be ignited for prayer. Now, before we do that, the, the thing I got to explain to you is, is you need to understand this privilege of knowing God as Father is not for everyone. It is not a universal human right. It is a spiritual privilege. Someone here may be saying, well, I thought we're all God's children. Aren't we all God's children? And the answer is yes and no, but mostly no. See, everyone is created by God, as I mentioned before. He's the one who's made everything. So all human beings are created by God in his image. That's absolutely true. And the Apostle Paul talks about that in Acts 17. He, he's speaking to the Athenians, and he says to them, in him, that is, in God, we live and move and have our being. So we all know God as Father in the sense that God is our creator. But what Scripture really talks about in terms of knowing God as Father is in terms of this relationship. A Christian is a child of God. We saw as Cora May was set apart in baptism that God was putting his mark on her and saying, this little girl is my child. You are in a filial relationship with God. You, you are part of his family. This, my friends, is the doctrine of adoption. And it is a magnificent teaching of the Bible. It's everything. I would go so far as to say that this is the key to the Christian life in summary, the doctrine of adoption. When you trust in Jesus Christ, Jesus says you actually become a child of God. Listen to what he, John says in John chapter 1, verse 12 and 13. He says this, To all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, that is, to those who believe in the name of Jesus, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of a natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. And notice it says a right to become a child of God, not to be called a child of God. Not to be treated as though you were a child of God. No, you're given the right to be a child of God. Every Christian is brought into God's family. We have a filial relationship with God, but this is only, my friends, for believers. And it is astounding because it's only the Christian faith that offers this kind of relationship with God. It's only the Christian faith that dares, that dares to describe our relationship with the holy, transcendent, transcendent, that's not a word, transcendent creator of all things as our Father. You know, the Israelites, the Old Testament Christians, they, they knew that the people of Israel, the, the nation of Israel, were the children of God. God was the father of the nation of Israel, but they didn't think about themselves as individually children of God. The other great Abrahamic religion, Islam, 
says that God is far too high, He is far too holy for us to ever dare to consider Him to be our Father. And in the Eastern religions, God is impersonal. He doesn't have a personality. So you don't call an, an impersonal being a Father. That just doesn't make sense. It is unique to the Christian faith, and it is remarkable. Listen to what J.I. Packer, a famous, now deceased Anglican theologian, says. He says, if you want to judge, now listen carefully to this, okay? If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. It sounds kind of harsh, eh? But, but Packer is trying to get us to, to realize that, that it's all about this. <laughs> The key to prayer, the key to the whole Christian life is understanding your relationship with God in such a way that He is your Father. And so what we're going to do is we're just going to think for a few minutes about the implications of the fatherhood of God. What are the implications of being adopted into God's family? And we're only going to look at one. There are lots. But I'm trying to magnify here. I'm trying to take this truth and focus it down into your heart. Let's, let's pray collectively that the Holy Spirit applies this to us today in new and fresh ways. The implication of the fatherhood of God is this, that you are absolutely secure in His love and His commitment to you. You are absolutely secure in His love and His commitment to you. Any parent will say this. When you have a child, as soon as that child arrives, as soon as you see that child for the first time, your heart locks on that kid. You are bound instantly and inextricably to that child. And the child has done absolutely nothing to earn this or to deserve this. I've talked about this before. I know it's a little bit controversial, but the truth is newborns are not really that cute. Many of you want to disagree with me, I understand, but this is not a my truth, your truth thing. There is an objective truth there. Kids that are born, when they come out and they're new and fresh and pink and wrinkly, they are not really that cute. And they don't do much other than cry, or poop, or eat, and sometimes sleep. But they certainly cause you a great deal of loss of sleep, and they are completely and totally and utterly dependent upon you. They are no fun. And yet, every parent loves that child anyway, in a way that the child cannot comprehend, frankly. Listen, In your friendships, you can have a friend who you're patient with, who sometimes they get moody and sometimes they're not a lot of fun, or maybe maybe they they occasionally do 
unkind things towards you. Maybe they gossip about you and you forgive them. Or maybe they're kind of unreliable. You plan something for Thursday or Friday and they bail on you on the last minute and you kind of put up with it for a while. But after a while, if they keep doing it or if they hurt you too deeply, eventually what you do is you cut them off and you say this is a toxic relationship. Or, or a lover that you're, you're in a romantic relationship with and it's all sparks and it's all beautiful and it's all chemistry and it's all excitement. But then that person changes and they don't have time for you and they don't have interest in you and every time you, you call them up and say, hey, do you want to get together? They have some reason that they can't and eventually the spark, what does it do? It, it, it fades and you say, I've had enough. Even a... Even a king, you know, a king will put up with, with their citizens who are, are, are sometimes difficult and, and maybe they, uh, they don't really like your rule and they don't believe that you should be the king, but if they eventually uh, start an insurrection against you, you will have had enough and you will arrest them and you will put them in jail. You can have a great relationship with your boss, but if you start slacking off or if you're doing shoddy work, eventually what are they going to do? They're going to fire you. But a parent is not like that. A parent cannot help themselves, you see. They have to love you. They, they do love you no matter what, and they are committed to you no matter what. Have you ever met someone whose children have gone off the rails? And they have gone into a lifestyle that is dangerous and hurtful. They have been incredibly disrespectful to their parents. They have been unbelievably inconsiderate. And they have caused a tremendous amount of heartache. heartache. And you sit with them and they, they spew all of this out. And they tell you how much deeply they've been hurt and how, how painful it is. And you say to them, well, why do you keep putting up with this? And they look at you and they say, because they're my kid. And I, I can't give up on them. Even if everybody else did, I can't. Some of you maybe have heard of a man by the name of Christopher Yuan. He is a New Testament professor at Moody Seminary, I think, or Bible Institute. And he was not a believer, and his mother uh, was a believer. And every Monday for eight years, she fasted, pleading with God to convert his soul. When most of us would have just said, it's hopeless. She did not give up. Why? Because when you're a parent, you just can't. And if, if that's what it's like for you and me and other sinful human parents, like, like how much more for God? Jesus says he is our father in heaven. He is not like earthly fathers. He is not moody. Every kid knows when, when to ask for something from their parents and when not to because they, they read the mood and they say, don't ask dad now because he's moody and he's grumpy and he's cranky and he's going to say no no matter how reasonable the request is. i got to wait until he's in a better mood because we're weak, because we're fickle. Because we're insecure. Jesus says that God is our Father in heaven. He's not like that. He is perfect in absolutely every way. And I know, friends, some of you, listen, I know some of you, you struggle with this concept of the fatherhood of God because you've had maybe a bad dad. You grew up in a home where your father was abusive or your father was addicted. 
all you know is dysfunction. Or maybe you didn't really know your father. Maybe literally because he left. But quite possibly figuratively because your father was distant, emotionally closed off and cold. He didn't really try hard to cultivate much of a relationship with you. And so the idea of God as your father, it's very hard for you to to connect with that and see the comfort and the joy in it. But, But I plead with you, don't let your experience interpret God's word. Let God's word interpret your experience. Understand that dysfunction in family is, it's as old as civilization itself. We are not, we are not the first survivors of bad parenting or perpetrators of bad parenting. Read your Bible. It's shocking how bad a parents many of our biblical forebearers are. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David. Listen, you know, those of you who have had bad parents, you know what you are missing. Instinctively, intuitively, underneath it all, you know what fatherhood is supposed to be even if you never got to enjoy that. And even those of us who would say we, we've, we've been raised by the best fathers, that's still a dim, diminished and dim reflection of the fatherhood of God. Jesus says God is our father in heaven. And that means that he is unchangeable and that he is utterly trustworthy. And you are forever secure in his perfect love. And here's why. Because you are adopted. The difference between naturally born biological child and an adopted child is this. Parents chose that child that was adopted. It means you were wanted. Now, I want to be sensitive here because... We have a number, and I praise God for this, we have a number of families in this church where our kids are adopted into our family. And if you are an adopted child listening to me right now, here's something you should know. You need to know deep in your bones, your parents wanted you. They chose you. They went out of their way to make you theirs. They did what it took. You were no accident. You are not second choice. You are not an afterthought. You are not a whoops. You're not a mistake. You're chosen. And for any of us who knows Jesus as our Savior and Lord, that is our relationship with God. If you believe in Jesus, it means that you are chosen. It's not an accident that you are God's child. It's not a, it's not a, a second, it's not, a, it's not a, an afterthought. It's not a, look, look, 
For some of you, your problem when you think about God is you think, you think that when he looks at you, he's always kind of looking at you as the add-on. Yeah, I got my kids that I really, really love, and then there's Bob. And you're Bob. And you don't think that God's affection is, is focused on you. You think it's a focused on his good kids. Like me, ministers. Or missionaries, better yet. Because like, I live in a manse, really nice house. Missionary, living in a hut in Africa. They're really sacrificing for the Lord. But you run a business, work in corporate Canada, you're part of the machine, you're a public servant, you go to bed at night and you're so tired you barely get our Father who are in... <laughs> You're rushing out the door in the morning and you go, darn it, I was going to do my devotions and I just, it got away from me again. I'm sorry, Lord, but I got to go. He doesn't. He doesn't love me like that. God chose you. In the book of Ephesians, it says that before the creation of the world, God set his affection on you that you would be holy and blameless in his sight. And he loves you. Now here's you're really going to get blown away, okay? He loves you like his own son. Because you see, when a parent adopts a child, if they have other children who have, have what are bio kids or naturally born kids, whatever you want to call them, those parents love those children the same. They make no distinction. And we would, we would know instinctively if they did that, we would know that that was wrong, wouldn't we? I used this illustration many times before and... I make no apologies for it because it is so powerful to me in my life. My own family. When I was 10 years old, my father takes me to a, a room in our, in our grocery store. He owned a grocery store, and he sat me down. And he says, now i got to tell you something. Okay, what do you got to tell me? Well, your two older sisters are your half-sisters. They're from your mom's first marriage. And I went, what? Yeah. I adopted them. I said, so they're not your kids? What? Yes, they are my kids. I adopted them. And I had no idea. And he had to tell me because he said, I, I don't want you to find this out on the playground at school. My kids found out when I used this illustration in a sermon. It was a little traumatic for them. What? Mom, poor Jessica, she's like got all these kids asking her questions in the middle of the sermon. But here's the thing, you know why I didn't know? Because you couldn't tell the difference. My dad made no distinction between his adopted daughters and his so-called natural-born children. He loved them the way he loved us. 
And we know that's right. And my dad, he's pretty awesome, but he's a sinner like you and me. And if he's like that, if he could be like that, how much more would the perfect heavenly father be like that? Can you believe that? Can you believe that God loves you as much as he loves his own only begotten son, our Lord Jesus Christ? Think of Jesus. How much, how much do you think God loves Jesus? Hmm? Can it even be measured? He's the perfect son. Oh, imagine having a perfect son. Never, never disobeyed you. Always made their bed. Always cleaned up their dishes when they used them. Never talked back to you once when you asked them to do something. Never even sighed and rolled their eyes. But more than that, the accomplished son who said, you want to adopt all of them <laughs> into our family? What's got to happen? Son, you got to go to the cross and you got to hang there and I have to treat you. <laughs> I have to treat you like the rebels that they are. And I love you so much, son, but that's what's got to happen. And the son said, yes, I'll do it. In John 17... Jesus is praying to his heavenly Father, and he says this in verse 23, 20 to 23. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. Listen to this. I in them... And they and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity, then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Imagine the welcome Jesus must have received when he came back from the dead and he ascended to his Father's right hand after everything he sacrificed. The welcome. That is how the Father regards you. I can barely take it in. You know how we pray in Jesus' name? Where'd that come from? Jesus mentions it once in John 14. He says, whatever you ask in my name. But there's no instruction. Therefore, when you pray, pray in Jesus' name. You know why we pray in Jesus' name? Because it is through the sacrifice of the only begotten that we stand before the creator of the universe as beloved sons and daughters. If you are not a Christian here today, and you think, these people are nuts. They think that they're children of God. I submit to you that, yeah, it's nuts. It's so nuts 
that the only way this could be true is if it is. And I didn't say that well. It is so outrageous that it has to have divine origin because no human being would try to pull off a false religion with that kind of promise in it. It just wouldn't sell. You couldn't sell it to Hollywood. You couldn't sell it on Bay Street. It wouldn't sell. And if you are a Christian, take that beautiful, astounding doctrine of God and drive it into your heart so much that his fatherhood ignites your prayers because it'll change you. Let's pray. Father, we can barely take it in, your fatherhood, and we've barely scratched the surface of all the benefits that that we get from you as our father. May we focus on this astounding truth, understand some of its implications, and find that it just drives us into deeper fellowship with you. Thank you for adopting us as your children. In your son's name we pray. Amen.